Good morning and great to be back here this Sunday with you all. Um, as some of you might have heard, yes, I did succumb to a severe man cold or a man flu. Uh, I do feel better now by the grace of God. And thanks again to Kent for um, stepping in and, and doing such a tremendous job on such short notice. So I um, want to encourage you all to go ahead and open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to be jumping in and out of it quite regularly. But I wanted to start with a question. It's a question that you may have asked on the day of your trouble. Maybe just out loud or to yourself. And that question is, where is God? My guess is uh, you've probably asked this question, either for yourself or for your loved ones. And this question, where is God, almost feels reflexive. Right? When something good is falling apart right before us or when something good that we really hope for, we don't see it coming together at all. Basically, if you've spent any amount of time in this frequently broken and messed up world, I would actually be more surprised if you haven't asked the question, where is God at one point or another in your life? And let me put this out there. I don't think this question in and of itself is something that, that necessarily perplexes or offends God at least not the God that we encounter here in the Bible. Because he actually seems to welcome such questions, and we often see him going very much out of his way to give real answers to such questions. Now notice that I said real answers, not easy ones, not quick ones. But it's here that I want to introduce a little surprise or twist because I, I do believe that God often answers this question, where is he, by inviting us to wrestle with another question, a different question, which I think is a much bigger question. It's one that necessarily comes before. What is that question you ask? It's the question, who is God? Who is God? So if at any point you've wanted some answer to that question, where are you? Where are you, God? This, the, the, the question that the scriptures often invite us to wrestle with first is, who is God? It's really the ultimate question, isn't it? If at any point uh, uh, you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus basically asks this question of his disciples quite frequently and often at little, like, tough turning points. He asks them, who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Another interesting example of this comes from the only story we have of uh, Jesus as a preteen. You know, the one where uh, 12-year-old Jesus gets left behind uh, by his parents in Jerusalem. We're presuming accidentally, right? Remember how Mary and Joseph, after realizing this huge mistake, they rush back to Jerusalem and they search for Jesus for three agonizing days. Parents, can you imagine the horror, right, of what they were going through? Now, after three days, they finally find Jesus, 
and it turns out he's perfectly fine. Just chilling, just chilling in the temple. And then Mary, simultaneously relieved but frustrated, right, uh, says to her son something like, Jesus, why did you do this to us? Didn't you know that your dad and I have been searching in a panic for this whole time for you? Couldn't you have done something? Couldn't you have intervened? Couldn't you have helped us out? And then Jesus gives this unexpected, puzzling response as to why he wasn't really that hard to find. Here's what Jesus tells his mother in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Just listen. Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So Jesus basically informs his parents here, if you really want to know where I was, you simply should have been asking who I was. Because this is who I am. I'm my father's son. Where else would I be but right here in my father's house? Now, what does this have to do with our passage today in 2 Samuel 22? Well, this question, who is God, is actually at the very core of our passage today. Look with me at verse 32. Verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. Now, before we dive in, there's a couple important things to know about this chapter. Uh, first, we just need to know that this is a song, right? These are lyrics by King David. And the first reason for this song is praise. In particular, praise remembering all the ways that God has rescued David and his people from their enemies. We see this in verse 1, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, not only is this song praising the Lord for uh, what uh, mighty works of deliverance God has accomplished in the past, it's also praising him for the mighty works that he will do in the future. Right? There's a past and present and future element to this. So this is a prophetic song of hope, where David looks forward, confident, with confident expectation, because the Lord has given him these certain promises that he said he will fulfill. And when they are fulfilled, we're going to see them remain fulfilled forever. All right, look with me at the final line of this song, where we see such prophetic hope. Verse 51 Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So just keep in mind, this is where this song will eventually take us to a forever salvation that will be ushered in by David's future offspring, which leads me to my first point and the first answer that I think our passage gives to this big question of who is God. The answer is, he is the Lord who rescues. He is the Lord who rescues. Look at verse 2, where David opens with this praise for God, his rescuer. Verse 2. 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Now, why does the writer of 2 Samuel put this particular song near the end of this book, you know, basically in the epilogue section of it? Well, one clue is 1 Samuel, right? Because 1 and 2 Samuel are basically one book. It opens with the song of Hannah, which is another song of praise and hope. So they kind of bookend each other. But I think this song is where it is because of where Israel is at at this point. Because here's where Israel is at right now. It's a nation in decline. Maybe that's something you can relate to. Israel is a nation in decline, namely because their king David is on the decline. Remember how a few weeks ago in chapter 21, we saw that David was getting old, right? Weary, a lot of miles on him. After a long life filled with so much violent battles and so much, I would say, relational violence, drama, and trauma, And a weary old king is bad news for Israel, right? They feel vulnerable as a result, Israel does. They feel insecure because they understood David to be the very lamp of Israel. Which implies, if David gets snuffed out, we get snuffed out. The operating assumption basically was, as it goes for David, so it goes for us. Now, although we don't live under the rule of an ancient uh, Middle Eastern monarchy, uh, we're really not that much different, I don't think. Otherwise, why do we get so worked up about who is or who is not in charge of our country, our state, our city, our church, you name it? Because we all, on some level, we operate with this deep-seated belief that as it goes for our leaders— So it goes for us. So when Israel looks at this weary old David and then they look to all the hostile nations that are surrounding them, like the Philistines, not to mention all the threats from within, guys like Absalom, Sheba, long lists of potential traitors, they're starting to wonder, who will save us from our enemies? Who will save us from all this darkness within and without? To which David reminds them, as well as us, who we must call on. Look at verse 4. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Because as it turns out, the the light of the lamp of Israel didn't actually originate from David, which is why David sings in verse 29, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. You see, it was ultimately the Lord himself who was the lamp of Israel. He was the light for their darkness, delivering them from all their greatest enemies by delivering David. From all of his greatest enemies. That's how it worked. 
And this question, uh, we're going we're gonna to explore and return a little bit more later, uh, comes to us, comes back to us, right? Who or what do you look to for rescue in this life? Where are you looking for light? What are you trying to carry as a lamp in this darkness? Be honest. You know, if I were to ask your closest neighbor, someone who sees you all the time, if I asked them, what would you say is this person's rock and their salvation? Is it the Lord? Let's be honest. This brings us to the, uh, another question of who or what did David understand to be his greatest enemy? Was it Saul? Was it Goliath? Or this or that foreign king? Surprisingly, he doesn't name any of them. But he does name one. David saw his chief enemy as none other than death. Death. And I contend it's also our greatest enemy as well. Look with me at verse 5 where David laments his true and ultimate foe. Verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And David's life, he was threatened on so many occasions. Men of violence and cunning were constantly nipping at his heels, which meant that death was constantly crouching and waiting at his door. Now, a sobering reality is, as much as our culture tries to live in denial of this, death is also our greatest enemy as well. Always crouched, always waiting, I just have sometimes some of the darkest, sobering moments where I realize this thing is just hanging right over everything that I love, everyone that I love, death. Uh, which is why I would also contend that it's the fear of death that is actually at the root of, our, of all of our other fears. Another way we can tell this is true is because for most of us, death is also at the root of our deepest and greatest sorrows. Death is the reason why we ultimately fear all forms of loss, chaos, and evil. After all, what's their final payload? It's death. Inevitably and always, death. Whether it be uh, anxiety about climate change or COVID or that party or nation, David just refers to them generally as the snares of death. So one question remains. It's really the only question that remains. What hope, if any, do we have in the face of this, our greatest enemy, death? Well, turns out we have one help, one call that we can actually make, which is, to call upon the Lord, which is exactly what David does in verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. And what comes next? That's what's astonishing, right? The Lord hears David's cry and, and gets angry. 
and tears through the heavens and, and basically comes down to deliver his anointed king. Um, from verse 8 on, right, we have this cosmic scene full of metaphorical imagery of, of earthquakes, heavenquakes, uh, smoke and fire and all these things that are actually quite reminiscent of Mount Sinai where God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And we can hear this as good news because God actually cares deeply about all this looming chaos and evil that brings death. He doesn't turn a blind eye to any of it. His righteous anger burns against it all, against the men of violence. And here, we actually see God depicted as this holy warrior who will overturn it all in order to deliver his people, his creation. And what are his people like before this deliverance comes? Are they proud? Are they self-sufficient? Taking care of business? Hashtag winning? No. They look desperately weak, overwhelmed, despised, and nearly defeated. This is where they are. Look with me at verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I love this term, broad place, in verse 20, because it's this metaphor for a wide open space of freedom, peace, and rest. A place where abundant life can actually happen. And this is what the Lord ultimately wants to bring about for his people. Right? Because he delights in them. Which is why David sings this uh, song of deliverance and, and why it took place. He says, because he delighted in me. Which means this. The Lord didn't do this out of begrudging duty or legal obligation. But he took great pleasure and joy in delivering his people from their greatest enemy. And uh, in this next section, uh, David goes on to elaborate on why. Why does the Lord delight in him? And it leads us to the most surprising section of this song. It's the one that kind of like was a speed bump for me in my initial reading of it. And we, but, but we know this section is important because it's actually at the very center of this song. It's kind of the anchor point for everything else. And this central section leads me to my second point, which is the next answer to this question of who is God? So who is God? He is the Lord who makes righteous. He is the Lord who makes righteous. Let's look at a few verses starting at verse 21. 21. 
The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Well, this is actually the most puzzling section of this song. Because it's if, uh, what David is saying here is, because I was such a good boy, God owed me all this deliverance. Some actually read it like that. But if you've been with us for any length of time in 2 Samuel, maybe from chapter 11 on, uh, that reading comes across as pretty absurd. Now, doesn't it, right? Uh, because we know all too well that David is a man of many faults, many sins. Yes, he often got it right, but when he got it wrong, he got it horribly wrong. In fact, we could easily make the argument that he basically broke all, each and every one of the Ten Commandments. So what do we do with this section where David sings about his own righteousness? Well, first, I think we start by giving the writer of 2 Samuel uh, the benefit of the doubt here that he wasn't some moron who uh, kind of forgot about David's life story. Uh, in fact, I would say he was probably a lot more familiar with the ugly sort of details than even we are. So maybe, maybe the writer knew what he was doing and he had a good reason for putting this here, literarily and theologically. Which then frees us to accept this section as an invitation, as a summons to wisdom, right? To paraphrase uh, John Woodhouse, he says, uh, so often in the Bible when we come to something this puzzling, it is an invitation to think and wrestle more deeply. So then, how is it that David could speak of himself this way, even metaphorically, as a blameless, righteous, clean man? Well, the answer is, David does so in the same sense that any of us can or do. Let me read verse 32 again, where David mentions the source of his blamelessness. Verse 32, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. Again, David's understanding is that the Lord, the rock, has made his way blameless. That is, David's life story is one of a repentant and restored sinner who called upon the Lord in both victory and defeat, always pursued the Lord's steadfast loving kindness, which we often refer to nowadays as grace. Grace. For example, many of you are uh, familiar with Psalm 51, where uh, we actually get to hear David's prayer to the Lord after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband. Let me read a few lines from this prayer. Lines that I think have brought hope to hope and comfort to many a sinner. 
that have prayed it ever since. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And you know what was astounding about the outcome of this prayer of humble repentance. The Lord actually forgave David. There was no temple sacrifice that could have done it. The Lord himself actually forgave David. Yes, it's because this God, who from the very beginning has revealed himself to his people as a God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, this Lord forgave David. And how do we know? How do we know? Well, 2 Samuel. Here's what the prophet Nathan told David after he repented in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now coming back to chapter 22, here's how David sums this up from his own experience in verse 26. Chapter 22, verse 26, he says, he sings, with the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. David doesn't sing because he sees himself as pure or blameless on his account. No. He saw himself as one purified and made blameless on the Lord's account. Because once again, who is God? Who do we hope to encounter here every Sunday? He is the Lord who makes righteous. And verse 28, verse 28 there is such a beautiful summary of God's basic terms for relationship with this uh, broken and fallen and sinful humanity. Uh, basically everybody here, including yours truly, who gets saved by the merciful God, who gets purified by pure God, who comes to actually see a blameless God and then become blameless like him. Only those who humble themselves before the Lord. Consider David again who cried out to God after recognizing his weakness and need for rescue from death, and who after making an utter mess of his life, brought that broken life to the Lord and pleaded this, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the Lord put away his sin. Lord somehow washed him as white as snow. 
Now, this amazing grace that David has received is also why the final part of the song from verse 32 to the end comes to be this amazing song of victory and hope. And this final section is much more obviously uh, future-oriented. That is, David talks about things that have been promised but not yet actually fulfilled. Regardless, David still speaks and sings of these promises as if they are as good as fulfilled. Why is that, you think? Well, it's because of who gave these promises. It was the Lord himself. Which is why David goes on to praise the Lord for how he utterly defeats all his enemies. And then, as the uh, exalted, anointed, vindicated king, he reigns not just over Israel, but now over the whole world. And this leads me to the final answer to the question, who is God? Who is God? He's the one who rescues. He is the one who makes righteous. Because he is the Lord who reigns. He reigns. Look with me at verse 44 where David talks about becoming the head of the nations after being rescued by God. Verse 44. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Now, there were actually many foreigners who came in service to David. But the original hearers would have un understood the prophetic aspect of what David is saying here because at no point was King David's rule actually beyond the borders of Israel. He was the head of just one nation. But these words, they present this future reality that's actually in perfect coherence with the biggest promise the Lord has ever made to David. 2 Samuel 7, right, where the Lord promised, without condition, by the way, this was an unconditional promise to David, that one day an offspring would come from his line that would, quote, build a house for my name. A house whose throne, the kingdom, who, whose throne and kingdom the Lord would establish forever. And this offspring of David would have a unique relationship with God. God himself would be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Look again with me at verse 50, the final verses of David's song which look forward to this offspring of David, who will forever establish the name of the Lord among the nations. Verse 50, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So this is the big question now for all of us giving you some clues along the way. Who is this offspring of David? Well, remember again where Mary found 12-year-old Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to her. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be 
in my father's house. See, Jesus was proclaiming good news to his mother. Basically, after three days of being lost to her, as being as good as dead, after three days, Jesus is found just chilling in his father's house. Jesus seems to be prodding Mary here, helping her look ahead. Don't you know who I am? Don't you see how all the law and all the prophets, they speak and point ultimately of me? Don't you know that this is the house my father has set aside for me? And that my throne will be established forever here. And my kingdom will know no end. And I'm here because I have heard your deepest cry. I have rendered the heavens and I have come down to rescue my people from their greatest enemy. Death. And in so doing, I will also become my people's rescue and their righteousness. Because here's the good news according to Colossians chapter 2, right? As it goes for the King Jesus, so it goes for those who put their faith in him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Just listen as I read. And you who were dead, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, and him crucified. Since God has made us alive from the dead together with Christ, our hope is this. Our certain expectation is, it, is this. We will triumph over all the powers of corruption, evil, and sin. We will be cleansed from the guilt of every trespass, all impurity. All of it will be forgiven. All debt cleared. It's because Christ himself, the son of David, he is that broad place where true freedom and peace and rest are to be found. And we are his temple. We are his house where he dwells and is planning to dwell forever. And in Christ, we will never be separated from the life, the light, and love of God. What a shame now it would be if this good news wasn't for the whole world. Well, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ, because this good news is for you, for me, and all the nations, right? Which is why David sang about how they would all of a sudden abandon their futile fortresses and surrender and become subjects of this anointed king of Israel, 
who is now the head of the nations. And how, how does all this take place, you ask? What miraculous means does God employ to subdue and woo the nations? Well, according to verse 45, all of this takes place simply on account of foreigners hearing about this king. Verse 45, as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Get a sense of what our mission is, what blessing we have to bring to the whole world. Because <laughs> here's the real means at the end of the day. It's the word of the Lord that will bring this about. Look at verse 31. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. And he crushes and destroys all of his... No, it says he is a shield for all who take refuge in him. This, this good word, it's not just the word from the Lord. It's also about the Lord. And this word brings covering for all who would hear him and surrender and repent and take refuge in him. So I just want to end with a few questions for us all. How have you been hearing this word? Take some inventory of your life. And then ask yourself, who is your rescue? Who could it be, right? Other than the one who can raise us to life forever, even though we die? And this next question follows from the first. Who or what are you looking to for your righteousness? Righteousness is nothing but our desperate attempt to claim life in some way. What are you looking to for that? Well, who can make you blameless and pure other than the merciful, blameless, and pure one who has come down to make us perfectly righteous in God's sight? And that leads me to the final question. And this is the one that I think we all need to remember, especially on our day of trouble. Who is the one who reigns? Who reigns? If it is not the one whose throne rests forever in his father's house, what hope is there? But thanks be to God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, who reigns now and forever and lives to make intercession for those who call upon his name. Blessed be this rock, our rock of salvation. Amen.